I'm continuing my series in Haggai tonight. We looked at the first portion of Haggai back in May. We'll look at the middle portion of Haggai tonight, and then we'll finish the book of Haggai next Sunday evening. But before we get to our text tonight, I want to ask you to consider how you deal with disappointment. And specifically, how you handle disappointment where you have poured yourself into something good, where you have worked hard to try to do the right thing, and then where you have stepped back and looked at the results and been utterly disappointed. Maybe it's with some sort of life goal. Maybe it's a good goal and an honorable goal, a noble thing to seek to do, and you're working at it hard. You're trying for it. But despite your best efforts, it's not moving forward. And you are disappointed. How then do you respond? Or maybe it's with your kids. Maybe you are pouring yourself into your kids. You're trying to care for them well, to nurture them, to instruct them and love them, to discipline them well. You're struggling and sacrificing to try to do what's best for them. But in one way or another, You step back, and it often feels like it's coming to nothing. Maybe they persist in disobedience or foolishness. Maybe they're making choices that are hurting themselves or others. Or maybe they're struggling, either mentally, emotionally, spiritually, or physically. And you're trying so hard to do things right for them, but day by day, it feels as if your efforts are in vain, and you are disappointed. And so how do you respond? Or maybe it's your marriage. Maybe things are hard right now and you're trying. You're trying to be a better spouse. You're trying to make things better. But it doesn't seem to be getting anywhere. You keep falling back into the same negative patterns. Despite your efforts, your prayers, your sacrifice, your marriage still feels cold and sharp where it should be warm and tender. And you are disappointed. And so how do you respond? Or maybe it's with some area of personal sin in your life. Some sin you're struggling against. You're trying to live faithfully, trying to obey Jesus. But no matter how hard you try right now, you seem to just keep failing. Again and again. And you are disappointed. And how do you respond? Of course, it could be a host of all other things. Maybe you're single and you want to be married. Maybe you or someone you love is struggling with health issues. Maybe it has to do with finances. Or maybe it's something else. But whatever it is, where do you see disappointment in your life? And then how do you handle it when you see it? I think that many of us, even most of us, tend towards one of two responses. And they tend to be one of two extremes. I think that typically we either deny that the disappointment exists or we make that disappointment our fundamental reality. We either deny that the disappointment is there or we make that feeling of disappointment our fundamental reality. Or to put it another way, we either spin it into some sort of semi-delusional positive assessment of things or we embrace cynicism. Let's think about both of those options for just a moment. So some of us spin our disappointments into a sort of 
delusional positive assessment of our situation. We try really hard not to see the problem. We insist that things are not so bad, that they could be worse, that it's probably better this way, that we didn't really want that thing that we could feel disappointed over anyway. And so we slap on a smile and we insist that everything is just fine. We deny the disappointment. Of course, sometimes others persist in pointing the disappointment and the brokenness out to us. But if they do, we can easily label them as less spiritual than we are. We insist that all is well. And we can tend to mistake this refusal to see brokenness, this semi-delusional optimism, for spiritual maturity. And so that's one tendency. The other is to make disappointment our baseline and to embrace cynicism. We declare that everything is terrible. We assert that nothing can or ever really will change. And then we either mock reality or we ignore it. And if some people have wrongly come to see a sort of semi-delusional optimism as a sign of spiritual maturity, in our culture as a whole, many more have come to see cynicism as some sort of sign of special sophistication. Being cynical has become a way to show others that you get it, that you are hip and supposedly real. In certain circles, it gives the illusion of being cool or even intellectual. But of course, it's not really either. It's actually much more simple-minded and self-protective than anything else. In an interview he gave in 1993, author David Foster Wallace pointed out some of the problems with this kind of mocking negativity. Wallace admitted that irony and cynicism can have a role in unmasking certain problems and hypocrisies in a culture. So it does actually have a role. But it's a relatively narrow role, a specialized tool to critique. And when cynicism and irony become our only tools, they soon lose their usefulness and begin to work against us. Wallace explains it like this. He says, the great thing about irony is that it splits things apart, gets up above them so we can see the flaws and hypocrisies. Sarcasm, parody, absurdism, and irony are great ways to strip off stuff's mask and show the unpleasant reality behind it. The problem is that once the unpleasant realities the irony diagnoses are revealed and diagnosed, then what do we do? Irony is useful for debunking illusions, but most of the illusion debunking in American culture has now been done and redone. Now what do we do? All we seem to want to do is keep ridiculing this stuff. Postmodern irony and cynicisms become an end in itself, a measure of hip sophistication and literary savvy. Few artists dare to try to talk about ways of working towards redeeming what's wrong because they look sentimental and naive to all the weary ironists. Irony has gone from liberating to enslaving. There's some great essay somewhere that has a line about irony being the song of the prisoner who's come to love his cage. And that image is such a good picture of what irony and cynicism can become. The song of the prisoner who's come to love his cage. So while some Christian cultures have tended to deny disappointment in an overly simplistic type of optimism, in our culture at large, it's cynicism that's really most common. So overdone optimism and cynicism. 
which do you tend towards most? It might be one or the other. It might be a little bit of both. You might swing back and forth between the two of them. And interestingly, though these two outlooks may seem like polar opposites, they actually have a lot in common. Dr. Dan Allender in his book, The Healing Path, points out that what both of these approaches have in common is that they're designed to avoid real struggle, to avoid real pain. They both sidestep real engagement with our disappointments. The overly optimistic approach closes its eyes to the reality of suffering and disappointment, both in our lives and in the lives of others, so that we don't really have to deal with them. The cynical approach closes its heart to hope and to the idea that things can get better, so that it can brush disappointment and suffering off with a shrug rather than really facing it. Both responses, in their own way, kill hope. Well, if that's the case, how then should we deal with our disappointments and setbacks? What should our response be? And we get the beginning of an answer to that in our text tonight, because disappointment is exactly what the faithful Jews in Jerusalem faced in the days of Haggai. You may recall, back from May, that in Haggai chapter 1, the Jews had returned to Jerusalem, but that, that after facing some opposition, they had ceased their work of rebuilding God's temple, and they'd shifted their attention to building and improving their own houses. And they had been doing this in a way that essentially treated the presence of God among them as a matter of indifference. They could take it or leave it. And so God sends Haggai the prophet to confront them and to call them to repentance and obedience. And amazingly, seemingly miraculously, the people actually listen to the prophet and they obey his word. It's actually a fairly rare event in biblical history. And so the people begin their work on the temple. And that is where we left off the last time we looked at Haggai. And our text tonight picks up just under four weeks after the faithful Jews began their work on the temple. Construction has been underway. People have been working hard and making sacrifices to rebuild the temple. And as progress is made, they get a better and better idea of what the final product will look like. And as they do, it becomes more and more apparent that the final product will not be all that impressive. And disappointment begins to set in. And not only that, but several other factors come in that make the disappointment even worse. We'll read in a moment that when we return to the story, at the time of the disappointment, it's the 21st day of the seventh month. Commentators point out that it was therefore around the time of the Festival of Booths. And as you might recall, we learned in chapter 1 that God had kept the Jews from having a plentiful harvest in order to call them back to obedience to him. And while they were now obedient to God's call, a meager harvest would not have been reversed in just four weeks. So they're celebrating this Feast of Booths, but it was probably a fairly modest celebration. It's like, it was likely not as bountiful as they might have hoped. And this then probably added to their sense of disappointment, as in more ways than one, the promises and blessings of God did not seem to be coming to fruition. But in addition to that, the festival would not just have been for those who were in Jerusalem doing the work. It was one of the festivals each year where Jews were required to travel to the temple if they were able. And while it's not certain how many were able to do that at this time, 
It's certainly likely that during this time, many who had not yet seen the work on the temple would have traveled to Jerusalem for the festival and seen how far things had come. Jews who up till now had only heard about the work and not yet observed it. I wonder if you've ever told someone about some project or task that you were going to go and try to do, and then you went off, you left them, and you began to work on it. And the task turned out to be a bit harder than you thought it would be. But you keep at it. And then part of the way through, that person who you spoke to comes back to see how it's coming along. And they haven't done anything to help you with it so far. And they've not seen how much work has gone into it already. But more often than not, that doesn't seem to stop them from making comments about how they're surprised that things aren't further along. Or that your results aren't bigger or better. We can reasonably guess that this is exactly what was going on in Jerusalem during the Feast of Booths. As those who heard of the building project now came and saw it for the first time, they likely registered their disappointment with those who had been doing the work, thus discouraging them even more. And if that wasn't enough, this time period also coincided with the anniversary of the dedication of Solomon's temple many years earlier. And so everyone there would have had Solomon's grand temple in their minds, imagining it, with great nostalgia and looking upon the meager structure that was now being put up in its place. And thus they would have been discouraged even more. And finally, if that wasn't enough, the festivals of that month involved many obligatory work-free days, many extra Sabbaths, not only giving the workers more time to think about their disappointments, but also working against any momentum towards perseverance that they might have built up earlier. And so these faithful Jews who had turned their efforts, their time, their resources away from their own homes and profits and towards the kingdom of God, towards the rebuilding of this temple, these faithful Jews who had obeyed God's calling sacrificially are now, about a month into the endeavor, looking over their work and seeing that it will not be nearly as impressive as they had hoped. They're celebrating a festival that's likely not nearly as festive as they thought it should be, while likely hearing criticism from out-of-towners who were not involved with the rebuilding but probably had a lot to say about its shortcomings. They were going through the anniversary of the dedication of Solomon's temple and thinking how sad their temple was in comparison. And they were now taking several days off from work on the temple. And they were discouraged. And they were almost certainly wondering if there was any real reason to go back to work once those obligatory work-free days had ended. It must have looked really attractive to just go home and give up. I imagine some may have tried to deny the reality of how bad things looked, but I imagine even more were tempted towards cynicism and defeatism. Why bother? Why not just give up? And it is in that setting that we come to our text. And so with that in mind, let's hear from our text, Haggai chapter 2, verses 1 through 9. And as I did last time we looked at it, I'll continue to return the covenant name of God, Yahweh, where our English translation has replaced it with the title, The Lord. So Haggai chapter 2, verses 1 through 9. In the seventh month, on the 21st day of the month, the word of Yahweh came by the hand of Haggai the prophet. Speak now to Zerubbabel, the son of Sheltiel, governor of Judah, and to Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest. And to all the remnant of the people and say, Who is left among you who saw this house in its former glory? How do you see it now? Is it not as nothing 
in your eyes? Yet now be strong, O Zerubbabel, declares Yahweh. Be strong, O Joshua, son of Jehozadak, the high priest. Be strong, all you people of the land, declares Yahweh. Work, for I am with you, declares Yahweh of hosts, according to the covenant that I made with you when you came out of Egypt. My spirit remains in your midst. Fear not. For thus says Yahweh of hosts, yet once more, in a little while, I will shake the heavens and the earth and the sea and the dry land. And I will shake all nations so that the treasures of all nations shall come in. And I will fill this house with glory, says Yahweh of hosts. The silver is mine and the gold is mine, declares Yahweh of hosts. The latter glory of this house shall be greater than the former, says Yahweh of hosts. And in this place I will give peace, declares Yahweh of hosts. This is God's Word. As we think of how God responds to these disappointments, what I think is striking, first of all, is that in this text, God neither sugarcoats their current situation, nor does He encourage or indulge their cynicism. He resists both of those natural tendencies that we have. So first, God does not sugarcoat things. He does not try to put a positive spin on the new temple as it exists. He doesn't tell them it looks much better than it did four weeks ago. He doesn't tell them how things could be much worse. He doesn't tell them that really it looks great if you look at it from the right angle. He doesn't even tell them to trust that he must obviously have a divine purpose for such a mediocre temple. Now, all of those things may be true, but none of them are what God says to them. Instead, in verse 3, God says, Who is left among you who saw this house in its former glory? How do you see it now? Is it not as nothing in your eyes? In other words, God says, look at this. Do any of you remember Solomon's temple? This is nothing compared to that, isn't it? God faces the disappointment head on. He names it and he agrees with it. God is a realist. He's able to handle reality as it really is. And one of his goals is to have followers who can do the same. We do not need to protect God from our disappointment or to deny that it's there. He knows when something is not as it should be. He knows when the results of our labor are disappointing. He does not expect us to pretend like they are not. He does not expect us to act like we are pleased with the outcome of something when in fact we are deeply and maybe even rightfully disappointed. He can bring our disappoint- we can bring our disappointment to God. He sympathizes with it here. He says it here himself. He agrees with their struggles that it appears as nothing compared to what they had hoped for. So God does not look on the sunny side, but names the disappointment and points to it. He agrees with it. But he doesn't then let them embrace cynicism either. He doesn't let them descend into apathy or negativity. He doesn't just let them lie about and complain. He comforts them. He reminds them of his promises. And then he tells them it's time to get back to work. At the heart of his response is that phrase in the middle of verse 4. Work, for I am with you. Everything else he says to them is an extension, an elaboration, a consequence of that phrase. 
I am with you, he says in the middle of verse 4, which is why he's able to urge them to be strong again and again in the first half of that verse. They can be strong and work because God is with them. I am with you, he tells them in verse 4, which is why he can tell them fear not in verse 5. Their God is with them and he will not abandon them. I am with you, he tells them in verse 4, and his presence is not just something that's there to soothe them. But we learn in verses 6 through 9 that the God who is with them is a God who acts. A God who, according to his promises, will shake the nations again, will act in history, and will bring glory and honor and fame to his kingdom and his name. The treasures of the nations will flow into the temple, into the kingdom, for it all belongs to God. And he is sovereign over it. I am with you, he tells them, and I will act in history, he promises them. God does not deny the disappointment here, but he also won't let his people deny that he is with them and that he will act. And therefore, cynicism has no place. God is with them and he is at work. And therefore, God's people need to get to work too. Because as one commentator points out, The presence and the promises of God are meant to mobilize his people. The Spirit of God is not a replacement therapy, but a recruiting sergeant. The correct reaction to hearing that God is present and that he is at work is not to sit back and wait for the job to get finished, but to get up and join the effort and work alongside your God as a faithful servant. But of course, while we can hear God's promises, We cannot see him at work in those moments of discouragement. While we might try to believe that he is able to shake the current order, we do not see it before it actually happens. We're called to act as if God is going to act, even when it looks all around us like our work is in vain. In other words, we're called to live by faith and not by sight. So what does that actually look like for us? What did it look like for the Jews in the day of Haggai? Not too long ago, Dr. Dan Doriani from Covenant Seminary was out here speaking at a Presbytery meeting. And in his talk, he summarized a story that's told by Annie Dillard, which caught my attention and which I had to later look up. In her book, The Writing Life, Annie Dillard talks about her time spending summers on Waldron Island in Puget Sound. Waldron Island is a bit north of Orcas Island. At the time, she was there at least. Uh, The island was fairly primitive. It was hard to get to. There was no ferry service to it. No electric cables or telephone wires ran to it. And all of this was in the time before cell phones. She talked about the water around the island. It was cold and deep, she explains. Fierce tides ripped in and out twice a day. The San Juan Islands aggravated tidal currents. They made narrow channels through which enormous volumes of water streamed fast. If an ordinary tide flowed up the beach and caught an oar or a life vest, it swept it northward on the island faster than you could chase it walking alongside. You had to run. The incoming tide ran north. The outgoing tide drained south. One day Dillard sat down with another resident of the island, Paul Glenn, who was an artist, a painter, who was working on some new artistic techniques with paint. And as they sat together talking and drinking their coffee, she asked how his work was going. 
And without explanation, he started to tell her a story about a man named Farrah Byrne, who lived on the island years ago. As he started the story, Annie Dillard thought that evidently Paul did not want to talk about his work. Fair enough, she thought, and sat back to hear his story. One evening, Paul went on, Farrah saw a log floating out in the channel. It looked yellow like Alaska cedar. He hoped it was Alaska cedar. He rode out to get it. Everyone on the island scavengered the valuable logs for building. If the logs did not wash up on the beach, it took a motorboat to get them in. They were heavy in the water. It was high tide, slack. Ferris saw the log, launched his little skiff at Fishery Point, and rowed out in the channel. Sure enough, it was just that beautiful Alaska cedar, that pale yellow wood, just a short log, about, 11, about eight feet, or he never would have tried it without a motor. I guess he thought he could row it in while the tide was still slack. He tied on to the log, such logs often have a big iron staple hammered into one end, and started rowing back home with it. He had about 20 feet of line on it. He started rowing home, and the tide caught him. The tide started going out, and it caught that log and dragged itself. Farrah kept rowing back north towards his house. The tide pulled him south down the strait here from one end to the other. Farrah kept rowing towards Fishery Point. He might as well have been tied to a whale. He was rowing to the north and moving fast to the south. He traveled stern first. He wanted to be going home, so towards home he kept pulling. When the sun set about nine o'clock, he swept south the length of the beach, rowing north all the way. When the moon, moon rose a few hours later, he told us, he saw he'd swept south past the island altogether and out into the channel between here and Stewart Island. He had been rowing through those dark hours. He continued to row away from Stewart Island and continued to see it get closer. Of course, Farrah continued to row north as the current pulled him south because he knew that if he stopped, he'd be pulled even faster and even farther away from where he wanted to be. And so all night long, he rowed. Then, Paul continued, he felt the tide go slack, and then he felt it coming in again. The current had reversed. Farrah kept rowing in the half moonlight. The tide poured in from the south. He kept rowing north for, for home, only now the log was with him. He and his log were both floating on the current, and the current was bearing them up and carrying them like platters. It started getting light at about three o'clock. And he rowed back past the island's southern tip. The sun came up, and he rowed all the length of his, this beach. The tide brought him back on home. His wife, June, saw him coming. She'd been curious about him all night. Paul had a wide, loose smile as he paused in telling the story. He shifted in his chair. He raised his coffee cup as if to say, cheers. He pulled up on his own beach, Paul went on. They got the log rolled beyond the tide line. I saw him a few days later. Everybody knew he'd been carried almost to Stewart Island trying to bring in a log. Everybody knew he just kept rowing in the same direction. I asked him about it. He said he had a little backache. I didn't see the palms of his hands. Paul looked into his empty cup, coffee cup, pleased, and then looked through the window, Dillard writes. She goes on, I started to carry my coffee cup to the sink, but Paul motioned me down. He wasn't finished. 
So that's how my work is going, Paul said. What? Dillard replied. You asked how my work is going, Paul said. That's how it's going. The current's got me. Feels like I'm about in the middle of the channel now. I just keep at it. I just keep hoping the tide will turn and bring me in. And that's where the faithful residents of Jerusalem in our text were as well. They too knew where they had to get to. They too were rowing and working faithfully, working to get there, sacrificing to get there, aching and straining to get there. But the tide was against them. They seemed to be traveling south even as they rowed north. And like Pharaoh, God tells them to keep at it, to keep rowing. And in that call to keep rowing, the call to keep working, as we see in verse 4, there's one major similarity between the Jews in our text and the rower in this story, and one major difference. The major difference is that the Jews in our text are never alone. They might have felt alone. They might have felt as alone as Pharaoh felt out in that small boat in the middle of Puget Sound. But they never were alone. God and his covenant promises were with them. But the biggest similarity was that both had to have faith that the tide would change. Pharaoh, as he rode, knew that the tide changed every six hours and 12 minutes. He couldn't see any evidence of that from his little boat, but he knew it was true. He believed it was true. And it was for that reason that he knew his rowing was not in vain. It was for that reason that he knew that there was a purpose to continuing to row all through the night, continuing to row north, even while the tide pulled him south. And the same was true of the Jews in Jerusalem rebuilding the temple. Their numbers seemed small. Their festival of booths was meager. The temple they were constructing was disappointing. Their place in the world, if they stepped back and really thought about it, seemed insignificant. They were trying to be faithful. They were sacrificing for God's kingdom. They were rowing north the best they could. But when they stopped for a moment and looked around, all they could see was that they were still moving south. But they had a God who promised them that he was going to change the tide. They had a God who promised them that he would act, saying to them yet once more, in a little while, I will shake the heavens and the earth and the sea and the dry land, and I will shake all nations so that the treasures of all nations shall come in, and I will fill this house with glory. The silver is mine and the gold is mine, and the latter glory of this house shall be greater than the former. And in this place, I will give peace. They had a God who said that he would reverse the current. And in the meantime, he was with them. They just needed to keep rowing in the direction he pointed them. And he did reverse the tide. He did shake all the nations. So not only their treasure, but eventually even many of the people themselves came into his kingdom and filled it with glory. And the shaking began actually not long after Haggai's prophecy. The Persian Empire, which ruled over the Jews at this time and must have seemed invincible to them, soon was shaken and conquered by the Greeks. And the rapid conquest of Alexander soon divided into the Syrians and the Egyptians, which were soon replaced by the Romans. And Rome, too, fell. 
But the point was not just that the nations were shaken, but that the kingdom advanced. And even before Christ's coming, more and more Gentiles became God-fearers and began to worship Yahweh, the God of the Jews. And then there was the coming of Christ, and with it, the explosion out from Pentecost. And the kingdom of God has grown exponentially ever since then. Consider for a moment the view of today from Haggai's contemporaries. They were a relatively small band of faithful believers, dwarfed by a pagan empire that ruled over them, trying to rebuild a temple to their god in their formerly conquered capital city, and as they built that temple and looked at it, they found only disappointment. Things did not look good. There was no visible ground for hope. Their efforts looked small and meaningless. Do you think any of those people in Jerusalem back in that day would have believed you if you had told them that one day 2.2 billion people would claim, at least claim, to follow Yahweh and His Messiah? That 2.2 billion people would at least state that they are Christians, worshippers of Israel's God. 2.2 billion people today identify themselves as Christian. That's 22 times as many people as lived on earth at the time of Haggai. Now, of course, not everyone who identifies as a Christian is really serious about it. Not every one of them is a true believer. But still, it means that even if only 5% of those who identify as Christians today are true believers, then there are still more people faithfully serving Yahweh today, more people worshiping Israel's God now, than lived on the entire earth in the day of Haggai. God has indeed turned the tide. Now, in the storyline from the Jews in Haggai's day to us today, there were many cycles of growth and decline, many cycles of disappointment and then great blessing, many changes of tide back and forth. But because of God's faithfulness, because of his promises, and because of his people's obedience in continuing to row, continuing to work, the story of God's kingdom is not just a story of cycles. It's not just a story of circles turning round and round. But it's a story of growth. It's a story of progress. It's a story that once involved a small band of builders in Jerusalem under the authority of a pagan ruler just trying to rebuild a sad version of an old temple to their, the God that they worshipped. And that same movement now includes 2.2 billion adherents. The nations have been shaken. The tide has been turned more than any worker out there in Jerusalem in the day of Haggai would have dared to imagine. We serve a God who is with us. We serve a God who changes tides. And our situation is not that different today. When Dr. Dan Doriani told and paraphrased this story from Annie Dillard, he did it to illustrate the current situation of the church in the Western world. It was no, it's no news flash at all that the church is declining in the West, even as it grows at rapid rates in the world's east and south. But the church has lost its cultural influence here in the West. The Western world has turned to other things, and increasingly we find ourselves in a culture that not only dismisses Christianity and its God, but that sees Christianity and its God as even sometimes a social ill, a threat to its vision for human society. So things are not good. They are not ideal, and few Christians would deny that. And so what are we to do? The same thing as Pharaoh in his small boat, and the same thing as the Jews in the days of Haggai. We are to row north 
even if the current is pulling us south. We are to work knowing that God is with us and that he will eventually shake every nation and every culture that rejects him as king. It is what he has done over and over again throughout history. It is almost as reliable as the tides. And so why would we doubt that he would do it again? Our calling then as the church in this culture is to keep rowing, to keep striving to believe the truth, to keep striving to proclaim the truth, not only by our words, but also by our deeds and way of life. We are to be faithful with the small realm of influence God has given us, not worrying as much about grasping at the heights of power, not believing that we can right the ship all on our own if we only get the right person into the right office, but faithfully rowing north in the areas that God has given us. The tide will change. It always does. Eventually, the tide cannot pull any further out, and it must come back. A culture cannot structure its life in a way that is contrary to the design of creation for too long before things start to break down. But even more than that, a culture cannot position itself in opposition to its maker for too long before its maker decides to shake their world and remind them that they are but men. And so the tide will change. And in the meantime, our calling is to row north, to go passive and just to float would carry us so far that we may even lose sight of our home, our goal, our destination. And so to keep rowing north, we may not move in the direction we want, but we keep our destination in sight so that we're in a better position to get there when the tide eventually does change. And as true as this picture is on the worldwide scale or the culture-wide scale, it's also true in many ways in our individual lives as well. What do you do when facing a situation with that child that continues to struggle or that child that continues to rebel despite your best efforts? You keep growing north, even if you seem to be traveling south. You love them. You care for them. You discipline them. You do what is best for them. And you pray for the tide to turn. Because God can do that. What do you do with your struggling marriage? Well, you try again and again to love your spouse well. To sacrifice for them. To serve them. To be a better husband or wife to them. You keep rowing north even if you feel as if you're traveling south. And you pray for the tide to turn, because God can do that. And what do you do in your struggle with sin, or with your unwanted singleness, with financial struggles or health issues? What do you do with any area where struggles seem to keep pulling you back? Well, you keep rowing north, even if you're traveling south. And you pray for the tide to turn, because God can do that. Now, this is not some sort of bootstrap theology. It's not about God helping those who help themselves. It's not about what you can accomplish at all. It's not self-reliance any more than Andy Dillard's story was about Pharaoh rowing against an unending current and still reaching home without any help from the turning tides. It's not about self-reliance for us any more than our text from Haggai is about the Jews of his day converting 2.2 billion people through their own efforts. The answer this text gives us is not really about you. It's about trusting God. It's about trusting that He is with you. It's about trusting that He can turn the tide. 
And it's about trusting that He has promised to do both of those things. And He is faithful. And He can be trusted. So what are you to do when you face disappointment? As God tells the Jews of Haggai's day, work, for I am with you. Be faithful in doing the work that the Lord has given you to do. And then go to your knees and pray for the Lord to turn the tide. For He can surely do it. Amen.